millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. My name is Mike Boris, and I've teamed up with Stake, one of Australia's top investing platforms, to talk about going public. IPOs are exciting milestones that unlock new capital, draw more attention, and open up opportunities. But a lot happens before and after the trading bell rings, and it's not all glamour. Join me in candid conversations with prominent business leaders as we reveal all the ups and downs of getting a private company listed. With me today is Joseph Healy, co-founder and co-CEO of Judo Bank. Judo Bank is an Aussie challenger bank focused on small to medium enterprises who have been left behind on service by the established banks. The company was listed on the ASX in 2021 under the ticker JDO. And you're about to hear all about how that transition went. So here's Joseph Healy going public. Joseph Healy, welcome to Going Public, mate. It's great to be here, Mark. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Well, last time we sort of caught up was virtually by, uh, through digital means during the COVID period, but I've known you for a long time and you've been doing work on this judo bank for a long, long time and I want to talk about the name in a minute uh, because it's an unusual name. Uh, You're the co-founder and CEO. You have a co-founder as well and uh, it was a pretty, well, consider your background being an ex-banker particularly coming out of NAB, and quite a few of your people come out of NAB, um, it was sort of a fairly big decision to make to go set up a bank. Yeah, but it was in the live a life of no regrets category. Now, I'd been a banker inside big banks for 35 years. So and what you would describe as an institutional guy, but I always had this entrepreneurial gene of wanting to do new things. And I tried it with inside big banks, but with Impossible. various degrees of success. But when when I left NAB, and I, I'd been thinking about this, and David and I had, had been talking about it since 2012, but we thought there was an opportunity to build a bank that really looked after the SME economy, who'd been poorly served by the big banks. And then we kind of thought about it, you know, you could live the next 10, 15 years quite comfortably. You'd saved en- enough money to live in a comfortable life and get another big job. And and just take it easy, but then you 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 have this mental picture of ten fifteen years out on a Friday afternoon, when you're sitting on the balcony with your gin and tonic, and you want to look back and say I did everything I, I wanted to do. What you don't want to do is say I lived a life unfulfilled, professionally that is. There was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't have the guts to do it. 
And that was the thought that kept going through my mind, that there was an opportunity, uncharted waters, because there was no precedent for this, no no playbook, as they say. But I thought I took the view as did David and others that... David being your partner. Yeah, yeah. David da- Hornery. David Hornery. Let's give it a go. If we fail, and the chances of failure in these ventures is, you know, people say 90%, then we might have lost a lot of money, damaged our reputations a little bit. Uh, the runway in front career-wise would be very limited, but we've given it a go and we can say we did our best. And so even at a at that stage in the early to mid-50s, the, the sense was if we don't do this, we'll regret it forever. So Joseph Healy, you were at NAB. NAB at the time, probably still is, but NAB at the time was the biggest business lender. Like it, it lent to business more than any other any of the big banks. It was a, a huge proportion of NAB's PL business lending. Yes. So you, you were well known for it. Yes. So you knew how business lending worked. Yeah, correct. That was a great nursery for bankers, uh, NAB in those days. Yes. Um, why the hell did you decide to uh, do this? I mean, and what did your uh, partner, you married? Yes. You yes. married? Are you still married? Yes. <laughs> After this exercise? Well, uh, there was a bit of a time lag from let's give this a go to then talking to your families about it. Um, look, we, we used to catch up on a Friday evening, uh, the Green Gate Hotel. And uh, plot. And plot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the catching up was just to kind of take stock of the week because we were busy and, uh, and we wanted to just check in. And now was and is the uh, best business bank in the country. It still big, is. Biggest, yeah, yeah. It's, and it has been for a long time. Because they know it. They get it. They've been doing, we felt there was something missing uh, in the way that the banks, the banking system was dealing with small to mid-sized businesses. There had been consolidation in the industry after the GFC, St. George being a classic example of that in Bank West. Just on that, Joseph, you mean St. George being consolidated into the West Westpac Bank family yeah. and Bank West into the CBA family. Yeah. And so even though they kept a separate brand, there was, you know, the, the sense was that these are all part of a big banking Just one institution. Just one license. And, and there was a sense that banks had shifted quite aggressively towards household lending, but it's more attractive for banks to Resi. do that. Resi, yep. yeah, as you would know, Wellmark. Yep. Uh, it was more attractive from a return on equity perspective. Simpler. Simpler. And some of the, the skills that uh, that the what I would describe as defined the craft of SME banking. The, the banker sitting across the table from the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker and saying to them, tell me about your business and tell me what you want to do and let me think about how we might be able to help you. The banking system had progressively lost that. What the banks were saying to small to mid-sized businesses was, well, tell me how much real estate you've got and I'll do you 70% LVR, loan to value. And the skills that once defined the banker, uh, had been progressively lost to the industry. Bankers had become aggressive product salespeople. Commoditized. Commoditized. Yeah. And the in the operating model within these banks had become quite industrialized in the sense of a one-size-fits-all approach. And, and discretions and judgment that used to sit with the local business banker became centralized. And customers really were left with a take it or leave it proposition from the banking industry. Now, I was in the middle of all of that, uh, but I, and I could see it. I wasn't entirely happy with it, but the, but the industry was kind of moving in a direction. The regulator, uh, APRA, of course, uh, 
has a tendency to try and force all the banks to kind of operate in a similar way. And then the market, the equity market is kind of asking the banks, you know, how much mortgage lending are you doing? What's your cost to income ratio? How are you getting your costs down? And this kind of drove this industrialization. And I felt that the small to mid-sized business economy was being taken for granted, was being left behind. As borrowers. As borrowers. Uh, and they had no choices, really. I mean, they had four big giants. But when you take the brand logos away from the front of these big giants, they're very similar inside. And I've worked inside two of them here in Australia. They're very similar. And and there was something missing. And then when you looked at customer satisfaction surveys, you know, the, which are 10 a penny in the market uh, on SME, it was hard to find one that scored the banks higher than three on a scale of one to 10. So the customers were unhappy, um, but they had no choice. Uh, and the bankers, the good bankers, were very frustrated that they couldn't provide the service that they once upon a time were able to provide customers. They would quite often feel embarrassed going to see a small business and 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 listen to what the business is trying to do and think, gosh, this is going to be difficult. How am I going to get this through risk? And Risk uh, being the credit department. The credit so, department. Just to go back one step, so someone like you, you would prepare a submission for me if I was trying to borrow money from your bank at the time. Yeah. And then you would put it up to the credit dudes. Yeah. And the credit mob, you couldn't influence them. You you, you might know one or two of them, but yeah. they had to make it based on a set of rules. That's correct. What are, what are the policies? Now- and I never talk to them. Yeah, and and they don't see customers. They don't, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't get to talk yeah. to them and yeah. they don't get to talk to me. Yeah, which was not the way I had been trained. You know, when I had been trained in banking, uh, well, first of all, bankers were risk managers. That you, if, you were, if you wanted to be a good business banker, you, have to, you had to have risk management, credit risk management as a core competency because then you could talk to the business and say, we can do this. I'm going to need this from you, or we can't do it because here are some issues. Or if we can, if you can give me this, I can help, I can get this done. And you can leave the meeting with a high level of confidence that the business is talking to someone who's got some authority. And there are processes you've got to go through, but this this is a credentialed, experienced banker who says, "Yeah, we can help you do this." But what I was finding, and I was getting calls from customers who'd been with the bank twenty plus years. Uh, and let's say they had a million or $2 million of borrowings and they wanted to borrow another half a million dollars to uh, refurbish the kitchen and, and the restaurant, for example. And they were calling me saying, you know, we've just been asked for all this information and it feels like you just the banks just met us yesterday, not 20 years ago. And I just don't feel there's any sense of relationship here. It's all very transactional. And that's not the way that I had been trained in uh, business banking. And particularly when it comes to small to mid-sized businesses, this is a relationship business that you don't want to be speaking to some faceless person at a call center or going online and dealing with some algorithm. You want to be speaking to a banker who can help you because sometimes people don't know what they really want. There's a famous Woody Allen line that says, waiter, this isn't what I asked for, but it's what I want. Because the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker they're not familiar with banking products. They want to say, look, I want to invest another $2 million in some plant and equipment. I want to buy the premises next door to expand. How best to do that? And then the bankers should talk them through the options. How to do that, how you can get done, how quickly you can get done. That had been lost in the industry. And it's an art, isn't it's it? An, it's, well, I call it a craft. A craft. 
Yeah, it's that's a good crime. way of putting it. Because there's judgment exercised here. I mean, you're I, I, the number of times that I get asked to meet people, even in my in my role in judo, people through through my network, you know, I'll get calls and say, look, I've got this this uh, friend of mine who wants to buy uh, a, a premises to build a new bowling alley with a restaurant and a bar. Um, it, you know, it's in a great area. There's no competition nearby. Uh, would you know? Would you meet them? I say, okay, out of the friendship, I'll say I'll meet them, and then they'll come. And they'll come to see me with a big wad of papers with a, with their accountant, and they'll after a few pleasantries, they'll say, uh, "Let me take you through the numbers." And I say, I don't want to see the numbers. I, I want to get to know you first. I want to form a judgment on you as an entrepreneur, a competency that you know discussion. what you're doing. Yeah, uh, you, that you know what you're doing. So t- talk to me about what you've done in the past. Talk to me about the things that haven't worked out and how you manage them. And you go through that set, that evaluation. Does this person know what they're doing? Have they thought it through? What's the skin in the game? And then let's go to the numbers. Now, that's a craft. But the banks will say, like, that's too expensive. It's too timely. Just ask them how much property they've got and we'll do 75%. That, that is not serving the SME economy. That's not serving the SME economy. How long did it take to convince yourselves that this is something worth having a run at on your Friday night drinks? Yeah, I started thinking about it in earnest in 2014. In early 2015, we said, let's go. So what does that look like now? So I left the bank in late 2014. Yeah. There had been a CEO succession event at the bank. I actually had aspirations for, for the job. It went to someone else. So the right thing to do was to leave. And let, and let yeah. the new guy build Which his own Which is normal team. in the yeah, bank, it's, it? Yeah, because you, there's nothing worse than having a wounded bull walking around the, the place feeling he should have got the job. Uh, so they, well, quite a few of you left, I remember. <laughs> I remember there was a few walked out yeah. and went to different places. Yeah. I went off to China for a year, actually, to university, a city called Ningbo, south of Shanghai, to take a sabbatical because I didn't want to rush into you know, into another big job. And I had I had two other job offers, but I said, look, I want to take some time, get out of the environment that I'm in, and I want to be able to spend some quality time thinking about what is today Judo Bank. And uh, having pretty much made a mind, mind up with David that, uh, uh, that we were going to build this new bank, then the challenge was, well, how do you go, how do you go about that? Yeah, how do you execute? How do you execute? There's no precedent here. There hadn't been a new bank uh, uh, license issued in Australia for a very long time, and there has there was no example of a bank starting from a from a blank piece of paper. Now we we spent a lot of time talking about the various options of buying a finance company and 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 then trying to get a banking license, which was the traditional way. Yeah, like yeah. A, a lot of people actually did buy finance companies and turn them into banks. Banks, yeah. But we decided not to go down that path because we said, look, technology is changing so quickly. Uh, and and the ability to build something from scratch will take you longer, but you'll end up with a better a better product. You don't want to spend the first three, four, five years trying to rewire the culture, the systems, and the processes of a you know an old tired finance company. Let's let's go build something from scratch. Let's assemble a team around us. Let's build a business plan. Take our time on the business plan. Don't rush it. Uh, take seven, eight, nine months. Test it from all angles. Uh, measure twice, cut once. What could go wrong? If it went wrong, what would we do? How much capital are we going to need? So we built a business plan that took us from 2016, which is when we thought we could start lending, to 2020. So 10-year vision of the company. 
And this goes a very important point that in building this bank, we said, let's start with the end in mind. Let's not start and let's just see where we go. Have a vision of what it is we want this company to look like. And then let's make sure that we've got the resources in place to realize that vision. So the, the view on the business plan was we needed to raise 1.5 billion of equity uh, in the first four years. Just 1.5 billion of equity in the first four years till we got to profitability. There was also an assumption that we could get a banking license, but we both felt that we, we and the other people that we brought into the company were very well credentialed. You know, we'd worked, had deep careers in the industry. We knew the A to Z of how banks work and the risks involved. And that um, we were willing to put quite a bit of our own money into the company. So we weren't going out to investors saying, please invest in this. And we're uh, doing nothing. We're doing nothing. We, we mortgaged our house, sold our assets. And, you know, in the first 20 odd million of capital that we put into the company, about eight of that came from our personal resources. Uh, that's when you have to have a conversation with your wife, actually. Yes. <laughs> We're still in the house. <laughs> if this all goes wrong, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's no way back. <laughs> it's a big bet, though. It's a big bet. But we, but we knew the business, right? So we, so we knew that there was an, a problem, that there was small to mid-sized businesses were deeply unhappy with banks. We weren't inventing something that, that was brand new. We were building a new business model to to go after an, a, a well-established problem. And that is it. There's small business needing access to capital and can't get it. And a big market. And a big market. And, and a hugely complacent incumbents yes. who, who thought they were untouchable. You know, big giants are like that, not just in the banking industry. They kind of look at upstarts and think, oh, they'll fail. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Or if they go, well, we'll buy them. If they go, well, we'll buy them. And then they'll fail. Or they'll go out of business. Well, that does happen, by the way. <laughs> they, I mean, I don't, I don't want to digress, but when the big organisations do buy the upstart who's taken market share from, generally speaking, the big organisations stuff that upstart up when they own it. Because it's culture. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, 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 at the end of the day, when you're building a business, particularly a relationship-centric business, the hardware, the infrastructure, the technology – and the capital you can get, get. And it, but that doesn't differentiate you. What differentiates you is your culture. It's the way that your bankers think about how they're going to serve their customers. And I keep on saying to people that, you know, when we lend money to a business and the, and the money hits the bank account, the dollar from Judah is no different from the dollar uh-huh. from any big customer. No such big thing. Bank. There's no designer dollars. No. No money dollars. No. Dollars a dollar. Dollars a dollar. But what the difference is the experience from when the customer picks up the call or meets you to when that money hits the bank account. That's the, that's the market opportunity. And I don't think most people in the world understand or in our world understand how much money you actually have to raise to get your licenses and to continue on. You've got to have a, a certain types of capital that you have to reserve. Yep. It's a very difficult thing to do. How would you go about raising the capital you needed to make this business sing the way it does? Okay. We were crystal clear right from the very beginning of the amount of capital we needed, one and a half billion. And so we went to see investors and said, we're setting this bank up, here's the business case. We will require 1.5 billion in stages over four over years. Over time, yes. O- over four years. So in thinking about investing in this in this new venture, you really have to think about the ongoing call on capital that we will be asking for to the 1.5. We started calling on investors in Australia, but, but the feedback was, love the idea, love you guys come back when you made some money. 
come back when you've got some capital. So we then went overseas and we went around the world, Singapore, Hong Kong, Beijing, Shanghai, Abu Dhabi, London, New York, four times a year over two years, calling on um, investors. And we eventually got our first bite in New York. Now, we targeted sophisticated investors because we needed to speak to people that really could get it and also had a deep wallet. What we didn't want was mom and pop investors because their ability to follow on was always going to be an issue. And then and then small investors um, could be could be problematic. You know, they'll say, well, we'll put 20 in, but we, you know, we want we want we want a say in any more capital raising. So we said, no, no, here's the deal. One and a half, and we need sophisticated investors. Uh, and, and we also wanted investors that said something about the company. You know, there's an old Arab saying, tell me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. And we always said, let our shareholders make a statement about this company. So that took us mainly to London and New York. Um, but it was 86 meetings before we got our first dollar, you know. Uh, and, you know, we we were sitting many evenings in, in a hotel bar or a bar in London or New York thinking, wow, this is tough. You know, everybody likes, everybody likes the story, but no one wants to put the first dollar in. And we were using our own money, of course. And so that was that was not a limit, a limitless pit of money. It was running out quite quickly. But we said, look, let's keep going because it the key here is we find 86 meetings. You know, if we were getting no meetings, I'd be worried. But we were having 86 meetings with some very prominent people. So we were getting in the door. Um and then it was in New York. I always remember this. It was a, it was a part of Credit Suisse at that time. The, the guy, the manager, they did a manager buyout of it, and we went to see them at four o'clock. And uh, and they said, "What are you guys doing afterwards?" We said, "We're just going to go have a beer and get something to eat." And they said, "Oh, we'll join you." So we went downstairs to this local wine bar or bar, and within two hours, I think it was, the senior guy said, Look, "We'll put twenty in if you can find another 80. Right. So, but we'll put 20 in if you can find another 80 from uh, four other investors uh, that, that, we, that we are okay with. And that was the breakthrough because then we went to speak to people. So we got 20 uh, and then people, then it quickly it, it started to follow. When someone sees a good name become your anchor investor at 20, they tend to, no one wants to be the first. No. But a lot of times if they think it's a good idea, they like to follow. Correct. And uh, getting a, a credentialed name as your anchor is so important. So, so, so important. How many times do you reckon you saw Credit Suisse, for example, at, at that time? That meeting was, ironically, uh, that was one of the first meetings we had with them. But the other the other investors, and you and I mentioned a name earlier, uh, we met with them four or five times at least, I mean, over, you know, three years. Uh, and they said, look, one of the great things, other things that investors like, and, the, and even today when we were, well, I was in London uh, uh, in June speaking to some of our existing investors, one of the things that they always say, you know, we remember when you, when you David, came in to see us in 2016. And what is so unique about Judo is that what you're saying today is word for word what you said to us in 2016. Yes, you delivered on the promise. And it's consistent. Yeah. We didn't chop and change the story. The story was consistent. Uh, and and I've, I've seen them many times going through the notebooks back to 24th of May 
2016. And they said, this is exactly what you said. And this is in 2023. So the consistency fills people with lots of confidence that we know the market, we know the market, we know the opportunity, we know how to prosecute into that opportunity. We've we've thought big about this. You know, we're not coming and say, give us some money and let's see where we go. We said, we want to build a big bank. And, and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, and the people get a lot of, so, you know, the London investors in particular, yeah, we started speaking to them three or four times a year, 2016, 17, 18, 19, and they came in. Um, so I think that they, you've got to have a huge amount of tenacity and resilience here. And the other thing that I was felt quite strongly about, well, people always say to you, what's your plan B? Well, the answer is never have a plan B. Always make plan A work. Because as soon as you start thinking about plan B, you go there when it's too hard. <laughs> and so we say, look, it's plan A. This this business idea, which we're struggling to get money for, is as credible and as strong a business idea today as it was three years ago. Uh, we just got to keep going. And eventually we're going to kiss the frog that turns into the princess. Eventually. And then that changes everything. So I think the the tenacity the of uh, the resilience and the belief that, that we're going to make this happen. If I said you go back to 2016 knowing now what you know, would you have um, invested all that money in back then like and put yourself through the seven years? I would have. You, you learn a lot of lessons along <laughs> yeah, the way. <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, that's why the book. Yeah, it, yeah. you know, Because it is a grind. It's a massive process. It's a huge, it's a huge it is, I mean... It's the most exciting thing I've ever done. It's after probably the toughest thing you've ever done. The toughest thing I've done. I mean, I, you know, it's a roller coaster journey. Yeah. You know, the, the, there are days in the early, early stages, first three years, the number of times when you just felt the walls were closing in, it was just darkness, you couldn't see a way out. Uh, people that promised you things didn't deliver. There was a time in 2017, it was the 22nd, uh, 22nd of December, we had... Uh, $120 million of equity agreed. $60 million would come in uh, pre-31 uh, December, and then the other 30, $60 million would come in a 31 March uh, 18. Um, and there was four investors in, in the first 60, and there was four investors in the second 60. And then on Christmas, uh, sorry, two days before Christmas, uh, one investor uh, or his accountant who would never met before uh, came to a meeting and said, look, my, my client has decided not to go ahead. And I said, well, what, why? Well, they've just decided that, you know, it's not for them. I said, well, you, you've been doing due diligence here for six months. And if you pull out, then the others will pull out because they'll say, what, what did they know? And, uh, and when we couldn't convince that investor to stay in, and, but the other investors gave us till 31 December. I was like, we've got, it was always 31 December, but it was a week and it was the worst week of the year. But we had to find 15 million bucks, and we did. We did. I wouldn't be sitting here. I would have been divorced, and I would be up somewhere in Papua New Guinea or somewhere hiding. <laughs> so, so tell me about the IPO. So yeah. at what point do you decide to go to the public and raise money for working capital and other things for this business? Yeah. So we had raised $1.2 billion privately, and we had the final 300 mil to raise uh, in 2021. Uh, and the business was growing and and we were attracting great people into the company. Um, and the, the invest, our advisor said, look, 
you've got 300 million more to raise. It's a perfect IPO. You know, you, you, even though we hadn't planned an IPO until 2024, uh, they said, look, there's a great story here. You're better going with a primary raise rather than a few years later when you don't need any capital going as a kind of secondary. So we were convinced that, that there was, uh, it, was a, it was a good time to IPO um, for that final 300, which we got. We got the 300 that we, we wanted. Uh, and none of the major investors left the register, by the way. That was important. Because the investors said they don't want an exit right now. They just want to continue the growth journey. That so the they stayed done. in? They stayed in. They got diluted to some extent. Uh, diluted to some extent. But um, so we were convinced that it was the right time to do it. Um, and that the story was growing and and it was a special. There's nothing like it in the market uh, and that investors would be attracted to it. So we we were persuaded that it was the story good, timing right, that we actually need some money. Um, so let's do that as a-, a Was it growth money or was that- um, It was growth money. So you needed another 300 million to continue to grow. Can you grow? Yeah. So we, we, we absorbed about $150 million of losses until we got to profitability. So we'd used that we'd used 150 of capital. But the rest of the capital was really the other billion three point five was all about funding the growth in the balance sheet and really lending to uh, small to mid-sized businesses. What happens to the expectations of Joseph Healy in terms of running the business? Anything change, at all? Change a lot. Change Changes a lot. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Changes a lot. I, I would always caution people in going public. You know, that uh, all not all, but many entrepreneurs think it's the 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 holy grail. Build a business and list it. Uh, I, I would say think very carefully about that because actually that it can change things for you. Certainly, as a CEO of a bank, I'm spending um, about a third of my time, and in fact, we've got results in a few weeks' time, and then for the next two months, it will be more than half of my time with investors. Because you're you've got to be uh, uh, updating the market, speaking to investors, taking them through uh, the performance of the company. Uh, so there's a huge call on your time, and, and particularly you know as a young and relatively small company. In, in larger companies, the CEO can ask the CFO, and he's got a big team to do it. But but investors want to see the CEO and one of well, the, the founder. Yeah, they want yeah, and they want to look you in the eye yeah. and say, look. So. Um, I I had underestimated that call of my time. I, I I also underestimated the pressures that that can uh, come for you to kind of deliver faster than you want to deliver. Like we don't pay dividends today. Now we said to everybody, don't buy this stock if you're looking for a dividend this side of 2026, because we want it. We've got a great growth story, and we want to recycle the capital in the business. And then 2026, 27, then we'll kind of think about. Should we be paying a dividend? But of course, you say that, but nobody really listens to you, and they kind of say, "When's a dividend coming?" So, well, investors' appetites change too. Yeah, that's so true. You have to be able to respond to that. You have to, yeah. You, 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 Joseph Healy, have yeah. to respond to those 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 thought processes. Yes, you, no, you have to. Yeah, you respect them, and you've got to respond to them. You've also got to realize that you know it's great that people are interested in your company. So when I say it's it's a big call on time, it. Uh, it's a positive thing in that people are interested. Um, but as you know, when you're the CEO of a company, particularly a highly regulated company that's kind of growing, there's lots of other things that you, you, you should be doing to make sure that you're navigating 
the bank the way that you want, particularly in an environment that we're in, yeah. where the, where the macro environment is not uh, challenging. It's a bit uncertain. It's uncertain. So, and also you've got to manage the team. You've got to, the people inside the company, you've got to speak to them regularly. You've got to talk to them about why we're doing some things and not doing some things. Uh, why, uh, how the company's performing and thinking about the future, how the company's thinking about the industry, is the industry changing and what does it mean for us? So I think those things uh, can't be underestimated. They're very important things. So you become a huge communicator. Yeah. We said to the market at the time of the IPO, look, there's no real history to this company. So if you're trying to value the company, it's going to be difficult for you. So what we will do is give you some metrics that we will achieve when we're at scale. We didn't put a date on that, but but most people said that looks like 26, 27. We said at 26, 27, we will have a lending book of between 15 and $20 billion. Now, we're, we're halfway there today. We will have a net interest margin of at least 3%, and we've been reporting net interest margins above that. We will have a, a cost-to-income ratio in the low 30s, and we're on a trajectory towards that, that we will have a cost of risk of sub 50 basis points and we're comfortably operating within that and we'll operate within that, when we'll deliver a return on equity in the mid to low teens. That's pretty good when you consider some of the bigger banks or so the mid-sized banks aren't doing that. Then I mean, the, the, the regional banks are doing half that. And that we will have an NPS score with a six in front of it. Now, our NPS score today is up 67 uh, and I don't want to fall below six. Now, I, I saw an annual report from one of the big banks last year um, saying that they have a market leading amongst the major banks, NPS score and SME banking of minus five, <laughs> right? This was this was best in market minus five. And I'm saying I, I, I want the my board to have my performance evaluation subject to a plus 60. NPS score. And then all of that is dependent on having a, a best in market employee engagement. Because back to our early comments, this is fundamentally about culture. It's fundamentally about culture. That's your product. Yeah, that's the product. And, and also as an ownership mindset. I mean, all of the staff or 90 odd percent of the staff working at Juro today and this close to 600 own equity in the company. It's our biggest defense to a takeover. Because the other thing about going public, of course, is your for sale. You know, somebody can come along and try and buy Maybe, you. Yeah. Uh, now, will they try and buy? They buy the current share price. There's got to be a lot of people looking at Juro because it's it's way undervalued. But the, the, what they'll say to themselves is, "Well, you're not buying a business here. You're buying a culture and you're buying a leadership team." Uh, because if they leave, what you're have gone, I got? You're shot. You're shot. <laughs> well, you still believe in your motto, that is. Don't make moral judgments on people. Actually ask questions and try to understand their business first. Absolutely. And that is never going to be replaced by technology. No, no. As far as I'm concerned, never. Joseph Healy, congratulations, mate. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Going Public is a collaboration between Mark Boris and Stake. Find out more on hellostake.com. Any information shared is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. 
So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. 